This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. Well, it is a great privilege to be sitting here with Ian Galloway at the University of Durham. Thank you, Van. Now, the first time I met you, you were pastor of a church in Newcastle, the City Church, Newcastle. Newcastle, yes. Newcastle. I do beg your pardon. The very one. <laughs> yes, we we planted that with six of us. So uh-huh. six friends started that church in on Easter Sunday, 1986. Wow. Um, and we knew we needed to belong. You know, the, uh, we we were quite familiar with churches in the northeast, and there were there were many small and independent churches and we felt that perhaps those two things were correlated um, so we were looking for a, a, a family of churches to belong to and God led us to the New Frontiers family of churches Now yeah. is it, was it you who approached my dad and said Would, could we join in and he said no I'm in the south, we're in the south and then you said okay and India <laughs> you're That's in right. the south and it was you who said that was me, oh, yes okay. <laughs> I prepared for that conversation with your dad for quite a long time because we were asking to, to belong. We felt really at home with, with the churches and with, and with him particularly. And, um, but I, was, I did think that his answer probably was going to be no. And I thought the answer was because of distance. But I had found out they had churches in, well, Bombay as it was called then. Mm-hmm. So... The conversation went as I expected, you know, can we join? No, we don't go that far, is what he said. And I said, except Bombay. (laughs) (laughs) And then there was a really, really long silence. Wow. So this was telephone, you know, Uh not Zoom. Um, I think he probably went away and prayed, thinking back. There's a really long silence, over a minute. (sighs) And then he, he came back and said, yes, okay. Um, wow. Now, that was a strategic time. The Newcastle Church, um, there was a, it was kind of a, uh, like a greenhouse. A lot of young guys grew up there who yes. went on to take responsibility. Yes, lots and lots. Joel, your brother, being one of them. Mm. Um, yes, it was. It was leadership development's always been in, in my heart mm. and, and was in the life of the church as well. We've trained dozens and dozens of leaders um, many of whom are leading churches or helping to lead churches or have planted churches. Yeah. And you had that precious emphasis, which I have never forgotten, and it's done me a lot of good. I remember you coming forward in a meeting and saying, I believe that the Lord is saying to some of us, things have not been going so well. You've not been doing so well recently. I think you haven't been successful. And do you remember when that happened at school? And uh, you would hand in a piece of work, and the teacher would hand it back, and at the bottom were the two words... And you said them with a massive smile, see me, which I thought was absolutely wonderful. It spoke of the gospel. (laughs) It didn't speak of religion. It spoke of this relationship that we have with a gracious God. Yes, who who invites us to himself. This is it. This is it. Now, speaking of which, you have written a book where you're looking at the... uh, the subject of friendship with God, especially in the Gospel of John, called to be friends, published by Hodder. And uh, I'd like to come on to that uh, in, uh, shortly. But first, can I ask yourself, how was it you came to understand the Gospel? It was actually in a church about half a mile from here. Really? Yes, in Durham. So I was in Newcastle studying medicine. I was raised in a church-going family, so I've been going to church 
twice on a Sunday since before I was born. But it was, it was a liberal church. It was formal in its worship. And I can't remember anyone telling me that I could have a relationship, a friendship with Jesus. Uh, maybe they did, but I, I, I never heard that. Until I was 19, a friend of mine invited me to come to Durham for an afternoon and an evening. In the afternoon, a missionary from OM was speaking about how he thought he was a Christian, found out that he wasn't, and then became one. And somehow God used his story to get right in under my skin. And I realized that was my story, but I was at the beginning of it rather than at the end of it. I just realized, oh, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a follower of Christ. I don't know Jesus. And then I was in turmoil. We went to the um, Sunday evening service at the church. It was the first charismatic church I'd ever been to. And I was shocked that there were all these people who clearly had that friendship with Jesus, clearly loved Jesus and knew, knew it. Um, and there was an opportunity for prayer, and I just felt compelled to go forward. Um, and they came along and prayed for people. They came and asked me, what do you want prayer for? And I said, I don't know. I didn't have the words to right. say, I must be born again. or you know, <laughs> I just said, I don't know. And he said, well, you must know what you want prayer for. And uh, I, I actually burst into tears. And they prayed for me, and that, that was it. That was the beginning of a, of a lifelong friendship. Wow. And then, of course, you're in a family where there was an, a sort of a nominal understanding, and yet you yourself are coming to understand the gospel for the first time. Yes, and it caused no end of problems to start with. Mm. Yes, it would. My brother was very angry mm-hmm. and tried to convert me back to proper atheism. <laughs> wow. Not very successfully. Wow. Yes, so far. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I've not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword, he says. Mm. And you found, the, you found the sharp end of that, eh? Yes. Now, we're in a place where, of course, the gospel has done wonderful things. Durham University, uh, I was, had the extraordinary privilege of sitting down with Ian Murray a couple of days ago. He studied here. Mm. We've had both Barrett... Cranfield, Parker have taught here. Yes. Many great teachers. Yes. Who, who, who are people who have inspired, built you up? Who have been uh, perhaps uh, encouragements to you? Well, there's this, this chap called Virgo who had a big <laughs> impact on me, um, particularly with regard to the grace of God. So I remember when we planted the church, I had... I had to work, you know, where there were six of us. That's, you, you shouldn't be paid for looking after six people. That's <laughs> friendship, not a job. No. Um, I was working, and I was traveling in the car to see a client listening to Romans on cassette tape. And I, I, I was crying, Can, you know, because was, it was quite new to me, actually. I knew, I knew the scriptures from, from my upbringing, but the grace of God was, was transforming and I, I, was, I was in tears. Can this be true? Can this really be true? So that was a massive mm. early influence. Wow. Um, and that's those, those teachings. I was sitting down recently with some uh, younger New Frontiers pastors. 
And I was trying to explain to them that the distinctives of New Frontiers were not yes. some of the things which are, people distinguish them by now. I think people distinguish New Frontiers by comparison with everything else around them. And the yes. most obvious things, and that would be to do with styles of meetings and the songs and so on. But the teaching of grace, which, frankly, my dad picked up from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones... Indeed. ...was form- formative. But, uh, foundational in mm. every respect and our church became very well known for it both by those who loved it and those who were somewhat suspicious of it um, it became absolutely at the heart of who we were wonderful mm. and then of course there's Tom Wright uh-huh. Bishop of Durham yes indeed um, he had only been Bishop about a year when I was just driving into work uh, to the church, and, and God spoke to me and said I should invite him. I mean, I didn't even ask the elders. I just looked him up online and invited him. And I found out later that that email arrived a week before he planned his whole next year. And every year he liked to do something a little bit out on the edge. And so we were that for that year. And so he was our little bit out on the edge, and we were his and actually, we came together and had a, we had a wonderful long weekend. He taught a day on Galatians, a day on Paul, and Galatians, a day on eschatology, and then preached on the Sunday um, out of uh, Matthew 25 about God's heart for the poor, mm. which was also a big thing in our church, and uh, then prayed for everybody who was involved in ministries to the poor. Mm. So it was a wonderful, wonderful time. And that created a friendship. We... Uh, we did other things together, study days, conferences, and I would go and see him, talk to him. It was I, I felt very privileged, actually, somebody of his intellect. And, but also his Christ-likeness. I uh, was very, very impacted by lots of the things he said. Hmm. There's the chatty style in his kind of little commentary-type things. Yes. What are they called? Like an introduction? Everyone. That's it. I find him... uh, And Tim Keller, in his uh, great lectures on preaching, which he did with Ed Clowney, he references um, how uh, N.T. Wright will get to... uh, He'll get to a gospel, a gospel consequence. Almost, it seems to be almost intuitive, but it's also highly illustrative. Yes. He's not just conceptual. He's talking about... He's telling stories. Yes. Which we can relate to. Yes, he's very, very good at that. Right. Yes. So lots and lots of amazing influences. That yeah, I, yeah. I think we live in exciting times, to be honest. Oh, my word, yes. And, it, and the access that we had. Do you remember back when uh, I hadn't even seen a picture of Stott, for example? And then you'd say, oh, that's what he looks like, you know. And yes. then now you just take out your phone and click. There he is. And you can see yes. here, you know, Packer, Carson. Amazing. It's extraordinary. Amazing. Yes, when uh, John Stott, I think it was about 89, he came and did a farewell tour. He came to Newcastle. I went and shook him by the hand and just said thank, just to say thank you <laughs> for um, the impact he had had on us, particularly students. He had a huge influence through the Christian unions. Mm. Um, marvellous, yeah, marvellous stuff. Dick Lucas said to me, he said, uh, John Stott, he said he was a great leader for us. Yes. He would say, for example, Dick Lucas said during the week we would do be, uh, have communion at the church. 
And uh, Stott said, no, 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 the people should be having communion in their congregations on Sundays. And Dick Lucas said, oh, he's absolutely right, obviously right. And so he would take the, the lead yes. that Stott would bring. Yes. And you think, I tend to, you see, thinking church historically, the people who we talk about on our city tours and walks and so on, they were leaders. Yes. And they were going... Even if the world didn't, you know, characters yes. like Berridge, who was closed down, yes. but he said, well, I'm going to go anyway because I believe God is, you know, and, and characters like Whitfield, who was despised by the church. And yet he's, I have friends who've named their children after him now. And, and they, they were, they were leaders. Yes. Now you've been a leader. You have developed leaders. Yes. I'm interested to hear what kind of things do you, are you looking for and what kind of things are you seeking to sow into leaders? Gosh, what a question. Well, important question. Um, come to the module. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I found it very, very interesting coming here. And actually, I teach a module on, on Christian leadership. And I had to work out what are the 16 things I want to say, you know, in a couple of hours each. It was very, very difficult, actually, because there's so much to say. And I had, to, I had to work out what to leave out and what to put in and what to point people towards, but what to say was essential. Character has to be front and centre, Christ-likeness. You know, you can be as gifted as you want or as gifted as God has made you, but if you do not possess a Christ-like heart and desire to possess that more, then, you know, you're bankrupt. And so much shipwreck is caused by that. Mm. Um, lack of humility, lack of teachability, um, lack of love. Mm. So I think that that formed kind of a a big piece. Mm. And then one of my favourite sort of biblical explanations of leadership is shepherd. God as shepherd. You see that all the way through from from Jacob and Abraham all the way through Ezekiel to Jesus. And that idea of tending and leading at the same time carrying those who have young and taking them into you know the right paths and the the places of refreshment and Mm -hmm. and being present with even in the dark places and yet pointing towards you know ultimate destinations Mm. i think that kind of complex blend of things together love and tenacity Mm -hmm. um, i find shepherd a, a great metaphor to to kind of land a lot of those things Mm. Um, that you're to go ahead and you're to know where you're going and you're to be able to describe that and inspire people to to go with you but the way you take them with you is is also very very important you know that's that's peter's call in the gospel of john tend my lambs feed Mm. my sheep that's an apostolic call that's rich that's rich I'm sorry to say that in the middle of the city of London, Paternoster Square, right next to St. Paul's, there is a very telling statue, a sculpture, and it uh, shows uh, sheep and a shepherd. But what's telling about it is the sheep are all walking ahead and the shepherds are walking along behind them. (laughs) That's a very English way of doing it, isn't it? it? And I propose that... The people we're talking about from church history, the people who are the heroes of church history, they were leading in such a way that people were comfortable to follow. It's conspicuous. Yesterday I had time with um, Mes McConnell, Mm. and it's clear that he is going somewhere. 
and people are saying uh, it's like he's he's gone in and people follow him in and I, that was I was very struck by time with him but that's a, that's a precious and a beautiful thing for you to isolate there the shepherding metaphor hmm. that wasn't your idea <laughs> <laughs> yeah and yet it's extremely telling yes indeed character shepherding anything else you say jump straight out or should we move on i think resilience is probably another key mm-hmm. so having led a church in the northeast for 33 years one of the things i had to learn was how to keep going through both times of advance but also times of disappointment or difficulty or adversity um both in the context but also within one one's own self and um building resilience i think is a it's an absolute key for particularly for church leaders that long obedience in the same direction mm. um is what's required for it to flourish mm. it's it's not a short-term occupation building the church takes many years to do it well i think mm. it's easy to start it's much harder to sustain mm-hmm. and knowing how to find rest and how to build resilience in your own life are, are critical and so you would have a, you'd hold to a uh, a day off and so on and yes yes i'm a i'm a great believer in that i mean worked hard i worked really hard um and i think that's right but you need to have places of refreshment mm. and um you need to know that it's working because god is working not because you're working mm. and i think sabbath is a great reminder of that gosh this is strong this is helpful excellent Anyone from church history who's been a particular encouragement yes, or inspiration? Yes, I th- uh, there's a number. I think you can't live in the northeast without thinking about the northern saints. Mm-hmm. So Cuthbert has always been an inspiration. I mean, he's buried just up the road from, Gracious, from he? here. What a, <laughs> what a figure he is. What mm-hmm. a towering figure he is, particularly in the northeast. He has that vision of Aidan's soul being carried to heaven and then discovers that was the day Aidan died. And that's part of god calling him hmm. um he becomes prior eventually becomes prior of lindisfarne and being on lindisfarne i mean it's a sort of re, it's a remote place now but that was actually like parking yourself in the thames the the king oh, really? the king lived just across the water mm-hmm. in bamborough uh, it was very very influential but he he combined these qualities of he was an evangelist he went on missionary journeys preaching the gospel and seeing people come to the lord he saw miracles the you know there are lots of stories and perhaps some of them are more mythological but there's no doubt that he had a healing ministry and he was a teacher a, a scholar and he was a leader hmm. um, but in right in the middle of him was this devotion to to christ and love for jesus and he he became bishop but only reluctantly because he really wanted to spend time with the lord and so his whole life was built on that foundation of of knowing jesus um so that i find that very inspiring and um when his body was exhumed when they reburied it in durham they found a tiny little gospel of john only 5 inches by 3 had been buried with him and good I've, gracious i've seen it um it's in the british library but they they had an exhibition of it in Durham with the Lindisfarne Gospels. So yes, he uh, that that meant a lot to me actually when I found that out. Yes. So he's one and I, but I think the other one's probably John Wesley. You know what an amazing leader he was. 
I mean, the shortcomings, yes. But I just love the Methodist revival <laughs> for so many reasons. It's sort of discipleship. It's not celebrity. It's, it's not big personality. It's, it's hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people being taught to disciple each other and nurture faith and holiness in each other. Mm. And it's scalable. His heart was strangely warmed, wasn't it, in 1738. So they get going in 1739. 20 years later, they have 45,000 people in discipleship relationships. That's really good going. Mm-hmm. But 80 years after that, so 100 years after that, the start, um, population of the UK is 18.5 million. There are 1.7 million Methodists. Mm. 10%. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. And in Ian Murray's book, Wesley and Men Who Followed, yes. is striking because, again, you see a guy who, who saw, I can, this isn't about me, but it's, no. let's go. And there was this team element. Yeah, empowering others, equipping others, mm. and giving a way of, you know, miners and, and farm workers, you know, a way of them leading as well mm. and growing in the faith, um, you know, learning Greek. Because <laughs> uh, actually, <laughs> they were clever. Uh-huh. That's um, right. And pastoring and discipling others. Outstanding. You know, I had the wonderful privilege the other day of taking Don Smith oh. on my tour in the city. Oh. And uh, before we began, I... Uh, Don I, Smith. There he was. I said to the group, I said, before we begin, I just want you to know that we have um, a great hero from church history with us. Yes. A man who... I remember when he was trying to move to Hastings. Yes. And he, was, and he couldn't move for a year. And he's planting the church in Hastings from living in South London, as I remember. And uh, we would pray for him as a family. And then in the end, he moves to Hastings. And then the next thing you hear, that church is growing. Mm. And then once it's established, and I think 300 people or so. Oh, yes, over. He hands it over and says, I'll go and do that again. Then. Yes. Moves down to Eastbourne. Yes. Plants a church which goes to about 800 people. Yes. What was his training? He was a gardener. Yes. He was a gardener. I yeah. love that so much. Yes, it's wonderful. Although I did <laughs> rebuke him once. Because he would go around saying, well, if I can do it, anyone can do it. I've only got two GCSEs. And actually, Don was really clever and studied yes. a lot mm-hmm. and read a lot that was, yeah. and thought a lot. Mm. And I said, Don, you've just got to stop saying that because you're giving the false impression to, <laughs> to, to, to people. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, it was clear when you hear him preach, he didn't just say, oh, an idea during the week. No, it would be, it would be rich, yes. rich Bible. And he'd be drawing on Moses and he'd be making illustrations. But it was always, um, it was powerfully, uh, yeah, it, was, it was strong. I, I think he was a great, a great hero. It was a delight to have time with him. But uh, moving on from that, the, the, uh, the, what are you up to now? Now, I know what you've, what, I don't know what you're up to today, but I know what you've done recently. You've put out this, this book on the Gospel of John, Called to be Friends. Indeed. Now, um, Dane Ortland in the great book, Gentle and Lowly, yes. has a whole chapter which begins, one category in which to think about the heart of Christ is that of friendship. His heart takes shape as our never-failing friend. This was a common way to understand Christ more in past generations than today. But you've written a book drawing on that theme. Yes. Tell us more. 
It's really the fruit of my study in the Gospel of John, where you know, Jesus makes that explicit, I have called you friends. Um, but it, it, the genesis of the book really came out of my research into the Gospel. I was asked to teach the Gospel of John on a, a week module that we were doing as a family of churches. Um, and I thought to myself, better study it properly then. <laughs> and I read Carson's commentary, which is a wonderful commentary, uh, written in 1988. It gives an incredible overview mm. of study right back to the patristic period. And he, in that, he, he makes a small observation. It's kind of buried in the middle of it all. He says he thinks that future studies in John that are going to move us forward are going to be literary or narrative analysis. Now, he expresses some reservations about those methods, but he kind of indicates that perhaps that's a way forward for us. And I felt God speak to me at that point and say, that's what you should do, Ian. And I thought, well, what is that? How do I go about that? And I looked at how Carson had, had sort of painted the sort of narrative progression in John, because it's a very, very unusual gospel in so many ways and yet so connected to the synoptics in so many ways it's very difficult to explain how and why he structured it people have tried and you know there is actually no consensus about how and why he structured in the way he has and I I looked at what Carson had done and it it was underwhelming to be honest he'd kind of organized the stories in in order and arranged them under vague headings he thought oh and I so I started reading other scholars and it, it was, I had the similar thing. I thought, I'm not sure this is it. And I, was a, I didn't quite know what to do. Um, but then, again, God really helped me. I, I noticed a literary device in the gospel. So there's a reference after the wedding at Cana that this is the first sign. The first sign that Jesus performed after coming into Cana of Galilee. And then after the healing of the royal official's son in chapter 4, there's another reference. That phrase comes up again this is the second sign first and second but there's no third or fourth or seventh it just that phrase disappears hmm. and I felt God say why don't you kind of look at them together I felt maybe this is a literary device and the gospel has many of these trying to help us read it well um, why don't you put them together so I studied the stories together and I was truly shocked because they do have the same narrative shape In both stories, um, an influential person, his mother, the royal official, who by the end of the story is called father, mother, father, come to Jesus to ask him to help a third party. They have no more wine. My son is sick. Jesus' response is a rebuff. It's a pushback. It's almost rude. Woman, he says, I'm not sure how that would go down in you know, your house. <laughs> Tea's ready. Woman. <laughs> oh. um, it, it's not rude, but it's, it's not exactly encouraging. And then an Aramaic expression, what is this to me or to you? You know, stop bothering me is what it means. This is nothing to do with us. To the royal official, he tells him off. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Now, when have you ever said that <laughs> to somebody requesting prayer for a sick relative? Mm-hmm. I've I've never said that. I say, oh, tell me more. What's his name? I'll pray. Let's pray now. But the effect of the pushback is to draw them further in. They don't go away. They come closer. Um, So his mum goes off and says, 
to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She has complete faith that something's going to happen. We're, not, we're never told quite why she has that, but she does. The father comes, you can, you can almost see him stepping closer. Please come down. My son is very sick. It's a kind of begging almost. And then Jesus totally changes tack. Again, in both stories, he, he starts giving instructions. Fill the jars, draw some out, take it to the master of the banquet. Walk away. Go home now. Just go home. As you go home, you will receive your healing. And so it's in the hands and the feet of others that the miracle occurs. Jesus does the miracle and also doesn't do the miracle. You know, as far as the, the wedding banquet master is concerned, it's, he doesn't know it's anything to do with them. He, think, he gives the credit to the bridegroom. You know, mm-hmm. this is the best wedding I've ever been to. You know, mm-hmm. this is amazing. Mm-hmm. If there's a mother at home with a son, as far as she's concerned, he suddenly blinks, gets up and asks for lunch. Mm. It's only when the father arrives and can put the whole story together that they all realize, no, this is Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so that's an, I thought, that's a narrative shape. And then, of course, the next question came, which is, are there any more like this? And, of course, there are two more. There There are variations and there are progressions. You know, Jesus is not a machine, he's a person. But, you know, when we're doing things the same we we kind of act in a moderately consistent manner and so the feeding of the 5,000 and the raising of Lazarus you see all of those elements a request, reluctance, some faith, instructions and then an abundance Wow! Uh, four stories all sharing the same narrative shape Mm -hmm. That, 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 that left me with a real puzzle actually I thought that's such an unusual set of stories. I mean, what? They're clearly, they, they do belong together, but, but how and why are they there? And I thought about that for a long time, and I felt God say another question, which was, where have you seen these stories before, Ian? And that took ages, but I found them all, and they, do, they all exist one after the other in 2 Kings 4 and 5. So it's not wine it's oil but it's pouring in and pouring out of jars oh yes a family and have their needs met yes it's not a royal official's son it's a royal official walk away from me do obey my instructions and you'll find your healing with naaman yes it's not five thousand it's 100 men but it's barley bread bought to the prophet and he says set that before them and they're reluctant but he says no set that before them they'll all eat and have enough and there'll be some left over and it's um, the Shemunite woman, whose son, the son of a family who Jesus loves, uh, the prophet loves. Has, Elijah has a little room in their house. Um, he dies and, and they have to send for Elijah. He's up country. Mm-hmm. I thought, wow, that's not only we've now got four stories of Jesus acting in, you know, in a really clear way, consistent way. We've got four Old Testament stories sitting underneath. Mm-hmm. And then I was off. I thought, this might be a methodology. Mm-hmm. And so I started pursuing uh, other stories in John. I looked at the two stories before the first sign and the second sign. And they have the same narrative shape. Mm-hmm. And there are two more like it. And the Old Testament's sitting underneath. And actually, those stories are the ones uh, where Jesus invites people into really close friendship with him. Mm-hmm. So it's Nathaniel, it's 
Andrew, it's the unnamed disciple, it's Simon Peter. And those friendships are transformative, totally transformative. So Jesus looks at Simon and says, you know, your life is going to change so much, we may as well give you a new name. He looks at Nathaniel and he sees the good in him. And he calls it out. He says, look, there is a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit, no guile, no Jacob, an Israel with no Jacob. And um, Nathaniel's like, well, how do you know me? How do you know me? I saw you under the fig tree. And obviously that means a lot to Nathaniel. Mm -hmm. I think it's not just the fact that he was under a fig tree. It's probably what he was doing under the fig tree. I think he was probably praying the Psalms about how Israel has become corrupt and full of deceit, and yet, no, I'm, I'm going to be true to you, God. I'm going to stay true. I'm not going to go down their paths. There are many, many psalms that follow that, that sort of trajectory. And the first thing Jesus does in the gospel, is, is him, does himself in the gospel, is invite two men around his house and they have a late lunch um, and spend the day with him. And there are four stories that follow that pattern as well. Uh, the second one is the um, the Samaritan woman. So it's men and women. Um, <laughs> and the irony of that story is it's because the lunch isn't happening that the conversation happens. The disciples have all gone into town to buy food. And so Jesus has this amazing meeting with this woman whose life is totally transformed. And he, he knows her and he, he shows that he knows her, same as Nathaniel. And that doesn't crush her or condemn her or belittle her or shame her. She goes off saying, come and meet the man who told me everything I ever did. So for the first time probably in her life, she's been brought into close friendship with a man that's been healing and empowering (laughs) and transforming. And so her past is still on view. It's not like she's denying it or hiding it. It's it's still there. But the power of shame has gone and (laughs) the power of failure has gone. Mm-hmm. And of course, that story is the last thing that Jesus does in the gospel with um, with with Peter. Mm-hmm. Yes, takes him on a private walk. Mm-hmm. The beloved disciples hanging around in the <laughs> background somewhere, mm-hmm. and a very necessary but healing conversation yes. happens. Yeah. So yes, there's that's a key aspect in the gospel. Is what does Jesus do? He invites us into close, intimate friendship with himself Gosh. and you would see that as paradigmatic something which people should expect pursue yes i think in certainly in in evangelical and definitely in charismatic pentecostal churches it's right at the heart of how we think about the church we just don't really talk about it very much but mm-hmm. it is right at the heart mm-hmm. that friendship with jesus is the center of everything else mm-hmm. and makes sense of everything else mm-hmm. and that out of our friendship with Jesus we can then create community and family you know mm-hmm. as the fathers loved me so I have loved you uh-huh. so Jesus relationship with the father becomes the, the paradigm of our relationship with Jesus and then our relationship with each other. So there's only one um, ethical instruction in the Gospel of John, love one another as I have loved you. Mm. I think church is family, church is friendship Mm. because we've received 
the friendship of Jesus and the grace of God and our sins are forgiven so freely and so generously, we receive each other. Mm-hmm. Well, most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the, that's the goal, that's the true, that's the authentic, that's the fruitful, that's the potent route, the path. It is striking that you see the, pe- the believers who have gone before, you tend to find flowerings, whereas you find that those who are considered influential, you see strife consistently, yes. <laughs> frequently, yes. unpleasant stuff. I'm reading a little about Rousseau at the moment and his massive influence through Carl Truman's book. And then just a little footnote, no one ever seems to talk about the fact that he put his children in an orphanage mm. and none of them probably survived beyond 10 or 11 years old that's not fruitful that's not attractive that's no. not a model i'd like to follow no no it's not the it's not the nature of the church as as, as, as jesus intends us to be amen and i think when friendship ceases to be at the center all kinds of other things start happening mm. so church ceases to be family it becomes something else Aha, yes inevitably um it, be- it can become a monument to the leaders, you know, yeah. bigger the better. Mm, yes. Or, or it can become a sort of social action f- task force. Now, it's good that good things are happening, but without that centre of friendship with God, it, it basically runs out of steam eventually. Yes, yes, it does, yeah. And you tend to find those who have got the gospel, characters like uh, John Newton, who's just so astonished at God's grace. Well, what's his great work about four volumes of letters to people, friends, and so on. Yes. And you find, uh, similarly, Thomas Kidd has lately drawn out in his biography of Whitfield. He was a networker. He was introducing people. He was making connections. Yes. And you see that has constantly and consistently been um, the case with those who have been so enriched, built up in the grace of God. There's been that fruitfulness among them. Yes. There's a deep desire for collaborative partnership, isn't there? That's When we're drawn into Jesus relationally, then we want to draw others in relationally into what we're doing. And so it's not like we, we just spend all the time being matey, but actually, no, the whole of our purpose is filled with friendship as well. And the, the, both the authority and the desire for the kingdom to come and the love mm. kind of live happily together. That's right. You, Piper said that the best commentary on John is 1, 2, and 3 John. <laughs> and you keep finding this. Uh, in, I was looking at 3 John this morning. And you find that just exploding throughout the whole little tiny book. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Yes. I love that. That flowing and so and for I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy, says John, than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. This is not this is not the abstract thought of a philosopher. This is someone who's no. been changed by a gracious, fruitful Christ. Yes. Precious. And I think the the nature of the father-son relationship is then modelled into the life of the church, mm-hmm. the, the Jesus church relationship. So father to son, it's, it's family, it's intimacy. You know, mm. John one eighteen, you know, Jesus in the bosom of the father. Or the NIV puts it the closest possible relationship. <laughs> um, doesn't want the teenage boys giggling in yeah, the back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the father-son is also about authority. It's about the king. Mm, yes. 
uh, I have set my son as king. And mm-hmm. um, so the two, the coexistence of authority and kingdom and governance inside a loving family relation. That's the nature of the gospel, I think. Superb. That's beautiful. The uh, last question I'd like to ask you is, uh, and it's very broad, take this as you wish. What what advice would you give to people listening to this? You might say young pastors, you might say just believers, just you might say some advice you were given, which is born fruit. Nurture your friendship with Jesus. Don't let that slip through your fingers. As we grow and as, you know, life changes, you have to find fresh ways and you find deeper ways as well. But find the ways that bring you close to Jesus and and walk with them, in, hmm. you know, in a in a good rhythm. Hmm. It's it's like eating, you know. Hmm. Little and often seems to be the best way. And it's like um, find how Jesus comes close to you and mm-hmm. and pursue that. Oh, that's rich. And thank you for writing it all down for us in a book. Yes, indeed. Thank you. <laughs> cool to be friends. And now as I find back the tears, I thank you for your time with us and for that superb um, example and uh, for that suggestion and for op- finding that in the text for us. <laughs> thank you, Ben. For more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast and for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.